Hello, and welcome to PrimeMed's podcast series on influenza. This is the first of the series of four. We welcome our two faculty, Dr. Charles Vega, Health Sciences Clinical Professor in the Department of Family Medicine at UC Irvine, where he is also the Assistant Dean for Culture and Community Education, and the Executive Director, UC Irvine Program in Medical Education for the Latino Community at UC Irvine School of Medicine and Dr. Mary Montgomery, Associate Physician in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Instructor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. The learning objectives of this podcast are 1. Identify patients at high risk of influenza complications who would benefit most from antiviral treatment or prophylaxis, and 2. Review CDC and IDSA guidelines around management of influenza in high-risk patients. Before we get started, let me remind everyone that this podcast is supported by an independent educational grant from Genentech, a member of the Roche Group. For more information, please visit the activity page for this podcast on www.primed.com. Welcome to this PrimeMed podcast entitled Populations at High Risk for Influenza. Centers for Disease Control, or CDC, and Infectious Disease Society of America, or IDSA, recommendations. I'm Dr. Chuck Vega. I'm a clinical professor of family medicine at the University of California at Irvine. I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Mary Montgomery. She is an infectious disease expert and clinician educator at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School in beautiful Boston, Massachusetts. Welcome, Mary. Thank you. I uh, look forward to talking today. Yeah, should be fun. So let's get right into it. Um, who are these patients who are at a high risk for influenza complications? Mary, can you start us off? Sure. Yeah, so it's a, a pretty large group, but I want to highlight first the patients that are at the highest risk. And, and those are patients that have severe immunosuppression, patients that have had transplants or stem cell transplants, uh, those with HIV with a CD4 count less than 200. And then the second category would be patients with underlying lung disease. So they have baseline asthma. Um, COPD, they've required steroids within the last year. And then there, there's also a larger category that I would still say is high risk, but maybe is a step below the top categories I just talked about. And those would be adults over 65, residents of nursing homes, uh, pregnant women, uh, those with underlying malignancy or chronic medical conditions, uh, heart disease, liver disease, sickle cell disease. And then uh, anyone with a BMI over 40. And then finally, really patients with neurological conditions that might impair their ability to handle secretion. So it's a pretty large group. um, And these patients are really at highest risk of complications of the flu. So um, we'll be talking later, but you know these are the ones that I, I would really want to target with treatment and prophylaxis. Right, uh, and so it, for me in primary care, it's it's the patients I see every day. Um, it's the uh, very young, the very old, and those with chronic illness, and that's that's functionally my my practice. I also want to call it in our community health center um, where we see a majority minority uh, population in terms of race and ethnicity um, that uh, black individuals, Hispanic or Latinos, uh, and American Indian and Alaska Natives also consider to be at higher risk uh, for complications. And that's a, that's a historical data um, from influenza. So overall, look at your patients and, and I think you'll find that, that many individuals fall in this high risk for complications uh, group. Um, and so the main and I, I think that, you know, that's actually a great point that you bring up, and largely uh, those categories have been 
uh, patients that are, you know, because of their marginalized status and, and poverty, lack of access to vaccination, um, and increase of comorbidities. So not unlike other respiratory infections um, that we've seen right. recently. Yeah, so I think it's it's actually a new uh, guideline from the CDC, and it's, it's based on, um, you know, the stark data we're seeing uh, for particularly Black, Latinx, and uh, American and Alaska Native communities uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic. But it applies to flu, too, unfortunately. Um, and it has for many years. But, you know, so we can prevent a lot of those complications and we can prevent, um, you know, influenza in the first place um, through a strategy of vaccination. So uh, can you highlight some of the CDC and IDSA recommendations for uh, the use of the influenza vaccine? Yes, I love vaccines and I love the <laughs> flu vaccine. And uh, the really it's the kind of most essential part of preventing this illness. And when it's available, uh, I do recommend that anyone over uh, 65 years of age or older should get the high-dose quadrivalent vaccine. And then if that's not available in your clinical practice, an alternative is the quadrivalent recombinant vaccine. That seems to be more effective than the standard dose, but it's never actually been studied head-to-head -head against the high-dose inactivated vaccine. And then for every other patient, actually regardless, um, even if they're high-risk and immunocompromised, but they're less than 65, the recommendation is to get the standard quadrivalent inactivated vaccine. That's a great point. I, I totally agree with all those recommendations, um, but I would also just add that any vaccine is better than no vaccine. Inevitably, our clinic runs out for some period of days or maybe a couple weeks of the high-dose vaccine. Um, we just push forward with giving the standard-dose vaccine, even for patients who are older, because, again, they may not come back, and so that's, that's a risk we don't want to take, and so just getting a vaccine on board is, is a good idea. There's a lot of patients, you know, and um, and also I hear this from clinicians as well. What about getting a second dose of vaccine? Is that an effective strategy just in case the immunity wanes over time? Yeah, it's a great question. And obviously we're hearing a lot in the news about COVID-19 uh, COVID boosters. But currently for the flu, it's really only recommended for children and children between the ages of six months and eight years. And those uh, children do get two doses of the flu vaccine um, at least 28 days apart. And unfortunately, immunity does wane for older adults, but the current recommendation is not to get a second vaccine. The way that I counsel my patients, if possible, is to try to get the flu vaccine around Halloween. And the reason I say that is that local outbreaks uh, primarily kind of peak in January or later. There can be outbreaks earlier in October, but if you get your vaccine too early, then the immunity will wane and you'll not be as protected in those later months. So I think that the kind of sweet spot is middle of October um, to the end of October. Again, to your point, if they're in clinic, you know, it's September, that's the time you're going to get them vaccinated. Right. Then. Yeah. And, and I think that, yeah, my young invincibles, I'm, I'm encouraging them to go out and they are going to the pharmacies and getting their vaccine done in, in August and early September. That's, that's perfectly fine because it gets, it gets more people vaccinated and kids, kids, uh, same deal. So one conundrum uh, that we faced uh, since the advent of COVID-19 is whom to test for influenza and uh, and for COVID-19. And are we co-testing? Are are we you know testing everyone? Um, what's your strategy? And what is what's recommended by national bodies when it comes to testing patients with flu-like illness? Yeah, I mean everything about flu-like illnesses have been completely upended by the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and so let me first kind of take what is. Uh, kind of recommended for flu itself, which is that really we're trying to think about when would testing for influenza really influence how we manage it. And so 
any immunocompromised patients should be tested or any patients that are high risk of complications, as we stated earlier. And then, of course, definitely test any patient who's requiring hospitalization, you know, admitted with an acute respiratory illness. And what I do for testing is highly recommended by all the guidelines to do influenza PCR rather than the rapid antigen testing. Um, so that's kind of flu in itself. Now, in terms of how this has changed with the COVID-19 pandemic, pretty much anyone with a respiratory illness these days um, because of uh, requirements for work or school or their job or their family, if they have a respiratory illness, they're getting tested for SARS-CoV-2. And I think if we are in the influenza season, it's a great idea at that moment in time to also test them for influenza and or RSV if that is uh, available in your center. Yeah, certainly. And I, I think it because it's a it's a big game changer in terms of the recommendations we make for treatment, um, but also for public health concerns and isolation. Um, there's a difference there as well. And so it's really incumbent upon all of us to know um, what's going on as locally as we can when it comes to the epidemiology of influenza and SARS-CoV-2. Um, you know, SARS-CoV-2 seems like it'll be with us at this, at this time and, you know, in the middle of September. Uh, it's, it's not going away anytime soon. And I'm not exactly sure when flu is coming this year. As we remember, uh, last uh, flu season in 2020-2021 was a historically low flu season. Um, we'd be really lucky if we got <laughs> that kind of flu season again. Um, but so we, it, it, we really have to pay attention and uh, start co-testing even among outpatients um, and inpatients or patients who are severely ill. I think it's a lot easier. They're, they're co-tested very routinely, uh, justifiably so. But for, for most folks who are being managed in outpatient centers, oh, we're going to have to really consider that co-testing. Um, and that said, so let's move on to treatment. Uh, despite, uh, even if everybody got the flu vaccine, you know, people still get uh, the, the flu with it. It's, uh, you know, the vaccine is not 100% effective, uh, pretty far from it. Um, although I will mention it does make the flu that you get less severe, which is critically important for ke keeping patients out of the ED and out of uh, critical care. Um, but maybe you could highlight some of the uh, treatment recommendations from CDC and IDSA about treatment, uh, particularly for high-risk patients, because that's really where they want the treatment to go, those highest-risk patients for complications. Yeah, so a couple kind of key principles first, which is that one is if you have a high suspicion for influenza, the key is not to withhold treatment while you're waiting the test and in those with high risk of complications. So, and also it should not be based on the results of a rapid test since it has a limited sensitivity. So um, again, if you have someone that's high risk of complication, they have flu-like illness, they've had an exposure to some of influenza, the key is really to start them immediately on treatment. Um, and then it could be stopped based on a PCR result. And then the other th kind of principle is that the key is that treatment decisions should not be based on someone's vaccination status. Exactly as you so beautifully stated, the flu shot is great, but it's not 100% protective. Um, patients can still get the flu if they have it. And so that is, uh, should not be, you know, based whether or not you start someone on treatment or not. And then anyone that has, you know, severe or progressive flu who are in the outpatient setting in the clinic or the inpatient should be treated. And then as we've already kind of hammered home, you know, any outpatients who are really at high risk of those influenza complications, like we stated above, should be treated if they have it. Um, and then ideally treatment should be started uh, if you've had symptoms for less than 48 hours. And you know that is the best, but it's not always possible. And if someone is obviously very severe with symptoms and it's over 
has severe symptoms and it's over 42 hours, we will not withhold treatment and we'll still give it to them. So Chuck, but you know, there's, there's a lot of different nuances really to, to treatment. And I wanted to kind of pass it back to you. You know, what are you using for treatment in your practice? Yeah, great question. Um, and I, I definitely have experience with patients presenting a, a few weeks after they had influenza and then telling me about, boy, I was really sick three weeks ago. And I'm like, I can't really do much. You, you got to let us know. So I think it's important to let your patients know this is a time of year when, especially for my high risk folks, when I'm vaccinating them, I'm also telling them. But if you develop, you know, the you know, particularly if it's a sudden onset of malaise and cough, you know, give us a call right away. You know, I think everybody's really primed for that right now because of the pandemic, but they're probably not thinking about influenza as well. Um, so we want to make sure that they can be treated promptly should they develop, uh, tested and treated promptly uh, should they develop symptoms. Um, and you're absolutely right, the sooner the better. So um, what's the best uh, drug for uh, influenza? Um, the one you can get on board right now. So really emphasize speed to, to patients. So currently the recommendation for un uncomplicated or severe influenza is oseltamivir, and that's a neuromandase inhibitor. We know that one really well. It's been on market for over 20 years. Um, there's a, zanavir is the inhaled form of neuromandase inhibitor. And then there's another form called paramivir, which is um, intravenous. So that's a nice option, but it's really used only in settings where patients can't take oral drugs. And the other drug that's, that's newer and has a different mechanism of action is called Biloxivir, and it's claimed to fame as it's a one-time dose. So we know that uh, oseltamivir, zanavir, uh, uh, five-day course of therapy, uh, Biloxivir is one-time and done. And overall, it has had some good randomized trials performed where it seems about as effective as oseltamivir in time to resolution of symptoms. In another trial with high-risk patients for complications, um, both oseltamivir and biloxivir appear to reduce the risk of complications, uh, which is great. That's, a, that's an important goal, as I mentioned earlier. And uh, in that trial, uh, biloxivir actually led to faster resolution of symptoms compared uh, with oseltamivir among individuals with influenza B only. We know that oseltamivir doesn't always have the best track record when it comes to uh, the treatment of patients with influenza B. And so biloxivir outperformed placebo and oseltamivir in uh, that particular trial in that subgroup of folks with influenza B. Um, but, and there was a lot of hope that adding biloxivir to oseltamivir would yield better outcomes, particularly among very sick patients, because you have two different um, antiviral drugs with two different mechanisms of action. We know that uh, combining antiviral drugs uh, works in other uh, types of viral infections. Think about HIV or hepatitis C. Um, but there was a trial that when biloxivir was added onto oseltamivir, didn't really make uh, much of a difference um, to, uh, in terms of patients improving uh, faster who are hospitalized with influenza. And that might be due to there are some issues around uh, treatment emergent re resistance with biloxivir. Um, among outpatients, um, patients may, who develop that treatment emergent resistance, it's a minority, but they may get better more slowly. Um, uh, versus those who don't develop that mutation. So that still has, I think, some story to be written and, and more uh, knowledge that has to be gathered about how that actually affects um, clinical practice and, and patients. Um, seems to be more prevalent among in, in studies of kids uh, particularly. So that might be something uh, to watch in the future. Uh, and, and so we have the patient who, are, you know, we're treating with an anti-influenza drug. We've identified it. We're doing a good job. We have treatment on board. You know, it's sort of the last question I think of with these patients before I leave the room is, um, hey, who do you live with again? 
because uh, we do offer post-exposure prophylaxis uh, to certain individuals, but the rules are a little bit complicated in terms of the CDC guidelines for who should get prophylaxis uh, among household contacts of folks with influenza. Uh, Mary, do you want to uh, delve into those a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So I think it's probably overdone. And, and really where we should be targeting it is to those who are at the highest risk of complications. So if you take that member of that initial group we really talked about, so it's lung transplant recipients, patients with advanced HIV, stem cell transplant patients, pregnant women, who've really had close contact um, with someone who has uh, influenza. And that's really who the guidelines are targeting for prophylaxis. I think the other major category is recommended to residents of long-term care facilities when there is an outbreak, because we all know, unfortunately, that once influenza kind of takes hold in a nursing home um, or a long-term care facility, it, it can really kind of uh, spread quickly. And oftentimes, many of those patients are quite vulnerable to severe complications. And so in long-term care facilities, regardless of vaccination status, even if everyone has been vaccinated, if there's an outbreak, um, all of the residents should um, get prophylaxis. And then um, for most other patients, really what I try to say is, you know, you're not in our highest risk category. These, I want you to let me know immediately if you develop any early symptoms. Um, and so those kind of fall into patients who do not have risk factors, um, you know, who are not close contacts for individuals. It's really not recommended that we give post-exposure prophylaxis. The way I like to think about it is we really want to keep oseltamivir around for as long as we possibly can as an effective agent against influenza. And if we're giving prophylaxis, you know, to too many people, to kind of unnecessary uh, populations, then we're just going to risk resistance in the future. So again, kind of to highlight, for the majority of your high-risk patients you'll see in the clinic, as long as that patient has been fully vaccinated, we're saying, you know, greater than two weeks out from the vaccine, um, and the vaccine should have worked, meaning that they don't have some sort of um, uh, immune system deficiency or, you know, uh, antibody problem, or they're on immunosuppressive therapy that should make the vaccine not um, effective. So if they had an effective vaccination, antiviral post-exposure prophylaxis really would not be recommended. But I'd love to hear, you know, your thoughts and how do you, how do you handle this when patients come in kind of adamant that they, that they need it, that they deserve it? Right. I, I like your um, concept of, um, of immediate treatment when they become ill because, you know, many will not, uh, you know, particularly when they've been vaccinated. So, um, so that, that is usually protective. Um, but I can go a step further and say, you know, the mo here, I'm going to go ahead and I'll send in a prescription for you uh, for oseltamivir, say, or biloxivir, either way. And then, um, and then the moment you, you feel sick, if you have somebody go to the pharmacy and pick that up for you, you can start it right away. So it's a delayed prescription, which we've, which we've used for other, um, other types of infections in the past where you know, it's more along the lines of, if you have a complication, then, then use this drug. And I find that you know, many times they don't need it, but it is there and it's reassuring that they, um, they have it there. And that, that avoids the, you know, the taking the drug, particularly for, you know, if you're using oseltamivir, it's gonna be usually seven days of uh, treatment. Um, which I'm not sure anybody actually finishes a seven-day course of prophylactic therapy. It just sits, they, they take three days, feel fine, and then the <laughs> oseltamivir just sits there till next winter when they might use it again. 
Um, well, Mary, this was a uh, great discussion. I really appreciate your insights. Um, I thought it was very clinically meaningful. Uh, thanks to our audience as well. I know everyone is really busy, um, but I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to listen uh, to this uh, podcast. If you enjoyed it, check out the other three podcasts in the series on influenza and high-risk populations. You can also check out the additional series of interactive videos covering influenza management, which are located on the Influenza Curriculum webpage on PrimeMed. Be well, everyone. To obtain your CME credit, please visit primed.com and complete a short post-assessment. If you have listened to this podcast on another platform, please refer to the episode description where there is a direct link to the activity page on primed.com for claiming CME credit. Thank you.